The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, they've been called the American Brontes, the Peabody Sisters, indelible, lively, powerful, determined, igniters of American Romanticism. Elizabeth, Mary, and Sophia, the brain, the beauty, and the invalid, as an early biographer would have it. Our guest today said, well, that's a bit reductive. Let's take a closer look at these three. She then spent 20 years working on her book. What she produced is a work of intellectual history, a stunning work of biography, said the New York Times, and a window into a world where ideas were roiling through the atmosphere, searching for the balance of God and nature and the human mind and heart, the individual residing within the world, the great questions approached through contemplation and conversation. Emerson, Thoreau, and Hawthorne were members of this world. It was the air they breathed and the waters in which they swam. But women were there too, themselves as curious, as questing, and as accomplished. Women like Margaret Fuller and Louisa May Alcott, and these three, the Peabody sisters. Their chronicler, their Boswell, their in a sense ambassador to our century, Megan Marshall, is here today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I saw a review the other day that said the introductions are too flowery. Well, what have you got against flowers? <laughs> what else do you hate, dear listener? Rainbows and puppies? I think that was the review that also said I was a weird nerd who might be mentally ill. Well, take your pick, I guess. One or the other. I'm just here rolling along. I'll be whatever you want, including your mirror. So, today is the real deal, people. Oh, first of all, let me apologize. I think I promised that we would have an episode on Kurt Vonnegut today and his early environmentalism, but that is postponed, not because of any issues with the show or the guest or our conversation, but because of postponement, uh, there's been a postponement to the book's release date. We like to make sure those of you who are tuning in and listening to our guests are and want to go out and buy the book afterwards, are able to get your grubby little paws. I have no idea why I just said grubby little paws. That's not what I meant. Grubby little hands. No, I'm just kidding. Get your sophisticated, well-groomed, sturdy, well-groomed but not too fancy hands on those books. The hands of a kind person who works hard and lives well and wants to learn more. Get those hands on the books. The publication date of the Vonnegut books slid into December, and our interview with the author Christina Jarvis will slide along with it. Kurt Vonnegut. The last time we featured him was with Tom Roston about a year ago, and that episode has been the second most popular of the past 12 months, which is always a little hard to measure because it comes out on a rolling basis. The episodes that have been out there longest have the most time to accumulate downloads. So if I say the last 12 months, the ones that came out in November and December have a little bit of a head start. But anyway, anyway, it was number two on the list. I know there are Vonnegut fans out there who are 
who will enjoy this conversation with Christina Jarvis. So please do check back in and we'll bring you some more good Vonnegut talk very soon. The good news is that we're not falling off a cliff as we used to do when we had a postponement and your humble podcaster would be scrambling for his life, <laughs> dancing for his supper, trying to stitch something together to replace whatever got postponed. Today, thanks to our new producer, Emma, we have a long list of excellent guests in the works and lots of content already in the hopper, like today's guest, Megan Marshall. This book came out in 2006, I think. Megan Marshall is a Pulitzer Prize-winning literary biographer, and this book about the Peabody sisters is a classic of the genre. Thousands of letters that had never been read before until she came along, or at least not read by a biographer. I guess hopefully they were read by the recipient. Let me give you a thumbnail of these three Peabody sisters so you get a sense of how integrated they were into this time period, which is a pretty fascinating time and place. I've been spending a lot of time there lately with our guests, New England in the 19th century. Ah, Emily Dickinson, the queen of the realm. The nation is new. Emerson was born in 1803. It's 14 years after the Constitution was adopted, not even a full generation before. The founding fathers were still around, other than, I guess, uh, Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and a few of the older ones. But John Adams and Thomas Jefferson would not die until 1826 when Emerson was 23. James Madison, 1836. These guys were out there, part of the fabric. And they were asking questions and debating questions. What is this country? What is its purpose? What should it be like? How should it be governed? Who should be in charge? The country was also growing like a weed, and it had problems, intractable problems, slavery, the biggest of them probably, a ticking bomb. Culturally, the questions were there for individuals too, individual artists and individual thinkers. There's the look back to Europe, culturally and religiously. There's a Pope somewhere back there, right? There's a parliament across that ocean. If we, if we're, if you imagine the whole country facing west as it expands, well, over their shoulder, if you look back, there's Europe. There's the established Europe, the publishing houses, but here we are on this continent, in this nation. It's vast, and maybe we should start to forge our own way. That's sort of in the air, too. Education should be reformed, but how? Into that mix comes Emerson, the great thinker. But he wasn't alone. Plenty of others with grand thoughts on their minds. Reminds me of a guy I knew in college who was studying classics and he was writing his senior honors thesis. And you know how these things work when you write a, a thesis, a dissertation, or an honors thesis. You have a whole block of time that spanned an entire year for him. Well, typically you have to get very specialized because everything's been done a million times before and you have to do something that's new. So the papers end up being something, in the English world, they end up being something like the ineluctable modality of heteroglossia, how Joyce's Ulysses 
anticipated Bakhtin's dialogic imagination. Right? You know that colon. You know how that colon works in those sentences. In those sentences. They are sentences, basically. Practically. They're titles. But they get detailed. They get specialized. They get, at times, esoteric. And I was expecting something like that. Some mouthful. When I asked this guy, oh, wow, you're working a whole year on one topic, writing one long paper. What are you exploring? And he said, hmm, what is a just man? Oh, that's the kind of question I imagine the 19th century New Englanders wrestling with. And not just the men. No puns intended. Margaret Fuller held a kind of salon called The Conversations with women gathering to discuss topics like Greek myths and to address questions like, what were we born to do? How shall we do it? One person who was there wrote later, quote, I think no one attended that course who did not pronounce Fuller's initial statements and occasional bursts of eloquence the most splendid exhibitions of conversational talent, not only that they ever heard, but that they ever heard of, end quote. There's something beautiful in that statement, a reminder. We talked about this a few episodes back, how in the days before recordings, you might only hear a song once in your lifetime. It could be your favorite song. You heard it once at a concert, and it moved you, or overheard someone playing it on a piano or violin, and it, it was so beautiful, it, it made your heart race. And maybe you didn't quite catch what the title was, or maybe you just never had a chance to hear it again. One time, that's it, gone. That's how unavailable music was, and conversations like that. You're only in that room once, you hear the eloquence, you're inspired, you're moved, that's it. There are no videos, there's no audio recording. If you're not there in person, it's done. Unless, I guess, someone transcribes it or takes notes, and then people can read it, it can be worked up into an essay or a book, and in fact, somebody was doing that for these conversations of Margaret Fuller and guests. Somebody was doing that to let us know the topics at least, and it was the same person who said that quote I've said before about how it was not only the greatest conversational talent that they had ever heard, but that they had ever heard of. And that person was also the person who hosted the conversations at her bookshop, Elizabeth Peabody, the oldest of our three sisters who also opened the first kindergarten in the United States, or the first English-language kindergarten, anyway. She worked for Bronson Alcott, Louisa May's father. She opened a bookstore in Boston. She hosted Margaret Fuller's Conversations. She translated Buddhist scripture from French into English, making it available for all those transcendentalists who read it later. They were then recopied, those translations. No, not the translate. the notes were then recopied by Mary, sister number two, who was herself no slouch. She was a passionate social reformer. That's one of the key things in the air, by the way. Are we individuals who think thoughts and aspire to greatness and try to 
take care of our souls and try to know God and so on? Or are we here to make things better, to reform schools, to reform prisons? What should prisons be? What should the goal be? And how should that be carried out? How should we, how should factories be arranged? Who should be working there? What do we do about children working there? And my God, slavery, that was the biggest issue of all. Can we abolish it? How do we get there? How do we make the world better? Do we make ourselves better and hope for the best? Do we make the world better and let the self follow along or find some happy medium where we're fixing both? Mary, sister number two, was also a teacher and a writer and a social reformer. She married Horace Mann, and the two of them, this kind of tells you everything, they took a honeymoon to Europe, and while on their honeymoon, they visited prisons, reform schools, insane asylums, and institutions for the blind and deaf. They were taking notes. They were observing. It was a working holiday. They wanted to see those things as much as they wanted to see the, the, the monuments and the museums because they wanted to bring that knowledge back to the United States and make things better. And then Sophia, sometimes you might catch me saying Sophia, but apparently it was pronounced Sophia. The youngest of the three, a painter, frail, but who could read in Latin, French, Greek, In Hebrew, she knew geography and history and science and literature, and she married Nathaniel Hawthorne. Two of them had a long, happy marriage. So there we go, the Peabody sisters, right there in an an intellectually fertile time, Boston and Salem, 1804 to 1894, was the longest stretch. That was Elizabeth's life. She was born first and outlived the other two. Let's hear from the woman who spent the late 20th and early 21st century looking back at these 19th century women. Megan Marshall, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. 
Okay, joining me now is Megan Marshall, author of several highly acclaimed biographies, including works on Elizabeth Bishop and Margaret Fuller. She joins us today for a look at the Peabody Sisters. Megan Marshall, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks for having me, Jack. So for anybody who reads about New England and and the famous writers at this time, the Peabody Sisters have a knack for turning up. (laughs) And uh, I knew a little bit about them, but I realized I kind of had two misconceptions. And one is that I always assumed that they grew up in wealth and privilege. And the other is I figured they had really overcome a a dismissive attitude toward women. But instead, your book kind of informed me that they were born into a family that was down on its luck, and they were in a society at a particular moment where the intellectual opinions of women were more valued than we might otherwise expect. So I am interested to hear about their lives of these three women and how they got to where they were, what motivated them. Why don't we start with the family? Who were the Peabody's and what kind of world was waiting for the girls to be born into? Yes. Well, I'm really glad that you took those messages from my book because they were part of what I was thrilled to discover myself, that Mm. what we think of as the separate spheres era of the 19th century for men are in the offices and women are in the home was not so rigid in the early part of the century and particularly in New England. So the Peabody's the three sisters I wrote about, Elizabeth, Mary, and Sophia, were born in the first decade of the 19th century and kind of grew up with the new America that was formed by the revolution. They thought of their, Elizabeth, the oldest, said, we're experiencing a more internal revolution of mm. the intellect, mm-hmm. the mind and the spirit. And they became part of the transcendentalist group. They, You're right to think that uh, to, in a way to associate the name Peabody with wealth, but they were descended from the youngest son of the first Peabody's who came over, and there really was no money in the family. Their father had grown up on a farm and in uh, New Hampshire and found his way to Dartmouth, but his siblings were in and out of debtor's prison, and um, they were scraping together. Their mother was uh, born into a, a very successful manufacturing uh, family that lost all its money mm. in the revolution by investing in it. So they were just trying to scrape by as as a kind of professional class where mm-hmm. their father became a doctor, but there were too many doctors in Salem where they were living. So he was the doctor to the almshouse and he would try to, he became a dentist, he became a farmer. Really, it was their mother who had educated herself in the library of her grandfather, the wealthy grandfather who lost the family fortune, and became a, a school teacher and often held her schools or always held her schools in the household as the sisters were growing up. So they were in and out of the schoolroom or maybe part of the schoolroom and, and really saw for themselves, particularly the older two, Elizabeth and Mary, a, a way forward in, in kind of progressive education. Their mother mm-hmm. was an imaginative teacher. They became imaginative teachers. Elizabeth, the oldest, began teaching at age 16 because she needed to help supplement the family income. There were the three daughters born and then three sons who 
were significantly younger and really didn't amount to much compared yeah. to let, let me just ask a quick question about them. They're not as famous. I was wondering, were they not as talented or not as ambitious, or or were what, did they go into areas that just aren't as interesting to literary biographers of the future generations? What happened well, to those three? <laughs> Right, right. So two of them died young. Oh, um, I see. Right. And, and I have to, uh, I'm not that young. They died in early adulthood. But the, the, I think it was, you know, maybe somewhat problematic that their father was so, uh, you know, rather poor role, role model. Um, mm. The oldest one did, uh, Nathaniel, uh, named after his father, he, he lived a long life and became a kind of family historian. He was a pharmacist and tried to sell, I don't know, he made his way. But the younger two, George was heading off in business, um, might have done well. The family looked to him, but uh, he developed a tuberculosis that lodged in his spine and he died of that. And then the youngest, Wellington, who they did manage to get to Harvard briefly, he drank, he gambled, finally thought he would uh, apprentice as a doctor and went down to New Orleans to help out in a yellow fever epidemic and caught it himself and died. He, mm. Nobody knew how that, how that disease was transmitted at the time. And uh, so in his valiant efforts, he died. So anyway, there were the sisters um, supporting family, supporting each other, and a kind of amazing force field of intellectual energy. Mm. They, they were having seen that their mother could uh, educate herself by way of a library. They kept educating themselves. The father did teach Elizabeth Latin and Greek, and that was a great boon to her. But aside from that, she didn't pick up a whole lot from him. It was yeah. more the mother who you know, would have her students learn geography by pretending they're writing letters from different parts of the world. I mean, and if you think about that era where First of all, there weren't that many schools for girls. They might go in, in the off hours to public school after the boys had had their lessons. And rote learning, memorization was the way you taught. Uh, their mother was a very creative teacher. And Elizabeth, who began reading in educational theory, she just was a voracious reader, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, you know, she started experimenting in her own way in this very first school she taught at age 16 she was having students discuss words you know the way of teaching grammar wasn't you know subject and predicate and object it was you know what does this word mean in the sentence what do you associate with it and they, they, she said they would spend hours talking about one particular word and she was able to get these young students to be fascinated by that kind of discussion which yeah. you know was unheard of maybe that was part of it just having a chance to speak their minds right. um, as kids, freed them up. So we can thank the mother. You make the, I found it very uh, amusing and, and salient point that the mother named her daughters after an English queen, the Holy Mother, and the Greek word for wisdom. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a number of the women that maybe are a bit more famous from the 19th century, Margaret Fuller, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, were raised in families where the father was quite domineering, and he educated them. He, they, they would say, you know, I'm giving you a boy's education. Mm -hmm. um, and they, it, it developed a kind of split between, you know, what were they feminine? Were they masculine? You know, a kind of identity crisis that these Peabody sisters really never had. They, I think they felt women could do an awful lot, and they, they were going to do as much of it as they, they could. Um, although it is true that the younger two became famous for their marriages. Mary married Horace Mann, the great educator, and 
Sophia married Nathaniel Hawthorne, the novelist, at, mm. you know, when these men were kind of at the beginnings of their careers, more or less. Elizabeth, the magnetic oldest sister, attracted these men to the household, but they married the younger sisters, who I think were ambitious about marriage, which was another mm. way for women mm-hmm. to be powerful and to move into influential circles. They turned down some prospects, and they were they were almost holding out for men of genius. Yes, indeed they were. I think that both Mary and Sophia clearly, you know, in their journals or poetry that they wrote, you know, this is a fantasy that they had, and amazingly, they were able to realize it. Um, I mean, how many Nathaniel Hawthorns are there (laughs) hanging around, or Horace Manns? I know. Not many. (laughs) I know, but that's the thing about this era, and I have Mm -hmm. to adjust to that as well, because, you know, you'll read, they'll say, oh, we we went to Salem because it was the second biggest city, and I'll remember, oh yeah, Salem was a thriving port, and it, it was, you know, hustling and bustling, and and then, you know, they'll say, well, I, that was too much city for me, so I had to move out to the country and all that. And then you read, you know, Salem had 12,000 people. And I think, mm-hmm. well, you know, to me, that's like a small town, you know, that for us in our standards. So it doesn't, maybe it shouldn't be as surprising that there's so much overlap and crisscrossing with these people who were interested in transcendentalism or interested in in even bookstores or or everything because 12,000 people there isn't a whole lot of uh room you know there's there's a lot of uh possibilities of uh everyone kind of knowing everyone else but well, you know th- yeah. this also speaks to the question of you know what became of the brothers and how it was that women were able to move into this these intellectual circles in New England and Boston and Concord um because you know, it, I, it was around the time of the uh, revolution that the population began to shift such that Boston was no longer the largest city, no longer the commercial capital, but it retained because of the colleges, uh, mm. well, the, the college then, and the bookstores and the publishing industry, it retained its kind of reputation and as a center and activity as a cent- intellectual center, even as it was harder for men to find work. So um, the the period of in which I was writing, the Peabody sisters were coming of age. Was uh, the New, New England was the first part of the country where there were you know fewer fewer men than women of marriageable age, and men were moving west. The, you know, if you didn't want to leave, what was there to do? Many of the you know their friends who were going to Harvard Divinity School and looking for ministries had to leave and go to Ohio or Kentucky or mm-hmm. St. Louis to get preaching jobs. So um, there was a gap that the sisters could move into, even as also the these same rebellious young ministers were kind of up in arms about Harvard's really backward curriculum as they saw it. Mm. If the men weren't even all that excited about Harvard, that left room for the Peabody sisters. One of the many, many accomplishments of Elizabeth Peabody that is as you say, it's almost hard to understand today. This is what fascinated me about writing their, their lives was uncovering kind of unexpected ways of influencing. So Elizabeth began to hold historical classes for adult women mm-hmm. in the 1830s, and she had her students research countries and give reports. And she said there was no history professor at Harvard at the time. 
It just wasn't something that was taught. Mm. And so some Harvard students whose sisters were in these classes started coming to her class. Mm. So in a certain way, she was the first professor of history in Massachusetts and and maybe even at Harvard, you could say, if she had some Harvard students coming over to these classes. Right. Okay, let's take a quick break. And then uh, we will go more in detail into the lives of each of the three sisters. Okay, we are back. Before we get to the three, Elizabeth, Mary, and Sophia, I wanted to ask you about your own background, your interest in this project. How did you come to write about the Peabody sisters? How did they first come to your attention? Well, thank you for asking. Um, I first learned about two of the three, Mary and Elizabeth, in a class I took at Harvard as an undergraduate. It was the first time women's history was taught in the college, and Mm. it was a course on women in reform. Mary and Elizabeth had founded the kindergartens in America, or that's what we learned about them, which was a kind of, you know, it was sort of like the settlement house movement. It was meant to educate the young and often immigrant families as well. So I learned about them, and a little while later, I was working as a journalist writing about contemporary women's issues and mulling over these questions that the women I was interviewing of my own age and generation were saying, we're the first women who ever had to decide between family and work or had to face questions of breaking into the professions. And I thought, you know, is that really true? I had had this interest in history and in American literature, and I started looking around for family of women I could write about, maybe several generations. And I remembered these two Peabody sisters. And I Mm. mentioned this to a friend who happened to work at the Essex Institute up in Salem, a a historical archive. And she said, well, there was a third sister, Sophia, who married Nathaniel Hawthorne. And I said, (laughs) whoa, this really brings it all together. I hadn't known that. So that really confirmed it. And I was able, I, I saw that I thought I could kind of bring my own contemporary questions to bear on this manuscript record of that I viewed as unchanging. This was history. We could, you know, it wasn't like women today who are, who are such a changeable subject. You can't really pin that down. And it also brought all kinds of interests, hidden interests of mine together. And so I was quite fortunate and it was fortunate that it was such a good match because it took me 20 years to yeah. research and yeah. write this did book. You, did you have any idea at the beginning that you were going to spend 20 years of your life reading the, the letters and journals and so on? No, not not at all. <laughs> I have never done research in an archive before. And, you know, there are plenty of people you could write about who's more famous, whose letters are all in print, mm. uh, which is true of Nathaniel Hawthorne or Emerson or Thoreau. So you don't really have to go to the archive to write about them. 
And these were long handwritten letters and sometimes cross-written where they'd write one direction and then turn the letters 90 degrees and write back across it so they could fit more on the page. It was deciphering cuneiform or something. But um, I loved doing it and I loved hearing their voices through the letters. And I found I could type out the letters about as fast as I could read them. So I just typed away and brought home and essentially made an archive of my own. But, you know, I started off, I had a contract that said I would turn it in in three years. I'd written one book before that that took a year and a half. I thought, well, this is going to be twice as hard. (laughs) Um, But I was still in the archive after three years. And my publisher, I have to say, I'm very grateful to Houghton Mifflin, which uh, stood by me through this. I had, I was on my fifth editor by the time I finished the book, who was just absolutely wonderful editor. And I'm still working with her, Deanne Ermey. And so it it was a a saga of my own life as well as their lives. But I did find that they were, you know, my engagement with them kept me going through the hard times and Mm. the ways in which they were. What had fascinated me or drawn me to it in the beginning was that these were, you know, women, although they were quite accomplished and very influential in their time, they were best known as wives or, you know, Mm -hmm. salon hostesses. And what were these lives really like? And what is any woman's life? I mean, how many of us can be the famous uh, Joan of Arc or the Queen of England? You know, we, we can't be that. And we can learn more from the lives of women who are living lives a little bit more like our, our own. So, yeah. Sophia, the youngest was yeah the youngest. Sophia was a very talented artist, but quite conflicted about whether to follow that career. And and as I was struggling over finishing my writing, I kept thinking, well, you know, Sophia was able to find value in you know in living her life, trying to live a good life. And maybe she would be an artist, maybe not. I had to deal with those questions myself. What if I never finished this book? Did that mean I'd lived a a wasted life and was a failure. Um, mm. I found answers to those kind of questions in, in the lives I was writing about. Yeah. Well, and it also helps us to understand this was such an incredible era and such an incredible moment. Mm. You know, I was thinking an analogy might be the Elizabethan era, and you say, well, sure, there's a, a Shakespeare, and maybe you can expand that out to Christopher Marlowe and and Ben Johnson or something. But really, to understand how Shakespeare was possible, you'd want to understand you know, the actors and the theater producers and the theater goers and the people who were near these geniuses. You know, they they can't just happen in a Mm -hmm. vacuum. But And the Peabody sisters seem like, you know, they would be sounding boards and they would be even more than that. They would have ideas of their own. And, you know, they were part of creating this moment where so many of our greatest American writers were coming straight out of it. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you about this book, that uh, a 1950 book about the Peabody sisters that kind of set them oh, up as yeah. the, the brain, the beauty, and the invalid. How close was that <laughs> to the truth? What did that book miss? And what did you want to add when you started uh, your own yeah. research? Well, that was Louise Hall Tharp's book, um, which was a Book of the Month Club selection, which I'm not sure anyone listening remembers the Book of the Month Club, or maybe does it still exist. But, you know, that that would guarantee you of being a bestseller. Mm-hmm. It came out in 1950. And it happened that Louise Tharp lived in Connecticut near a descendant of the Hawthorns who had all these letters mm. uh, by a Hawthorns in the attic. And there were, you know, mouse droppings and little you know, things gnawed away, but <laughs> but 
put Louise Tharp in the mind of writing this biography of the sisters. And uh, But she was not a uh, thorough historian, and not that exactly I was, but I, I had higher standards and learned from some biography friends and the reading of biographies. And a lot of what's in her book is made up. So oh. <laughs> she's the type to kind of make up conversations and to, you know, so it, it, there's the character problem of, right. of these sisters. And there's, and then there's the fact that the facts aren't really so reliable in that book, too. So I, and I wanted to change two of those things, get rid of the stereotypes and get the facts straight. Mm-hmm. But any three sisters will find ways to differentiate each other. And I was trying to look for the complexity behind those three very kind of stark contrasts. Yeah. So, yes, maybe Elizabeth was the intellectual leader and innovative teacher and a translator, but so was Mary, an innovative teacher and translator. She, Mary Peabody ran um, classes for young children where they, they were held largely outdoors so that they could study nature. That was her bailiwick. Mm. Um, and Sophia, yes, she was an invalid. She was also a very talented painter. But, you know, what did that mean for her? It didn't mean she was less ambitious. In some ways, I found from reading her journals and letters that she had been the most ambitious mm. of the sisters as a young person. She wished she could be a minister. She wished she could study, take chemistry classes like her brothers. And I think that powerful ambition got sort of turned inward, became part of the complex of her serious migraines, not to say that migraines are psychosomatic. She'd also been dosed with calomel or mercury as an infant for what her parents thought of as teething mm. problems. And anyway, so her constitution was weakened and, and probably another source of the headaches. But at any rate, my aim was to really show the complexity of their lives and to, you know, I, I uncovered so much new material. You were, you were talking about the ways they were, you know, sort of both audience and sounding board and instigators of, of many ideas. I found some wonderful journals of Elizabeth Peabody, the oldest, that had never been read by anyone before. And, and you find out that while she's, she became great friends with Reverend William Henry Ellery Channing, who was the sort of founder of Unitarianism, and she was giving classes in sort of religious studies to her older female students, and she would then visit with Channing and talk about that, and she'd find that the next week that was the subject of his sermon. So mm. <laughs> uh, you learn that, and then there are wonderful passages in the journal a little later when she got to know Ralph Waldo Emerson, and they're taking wagon rides and Concord over to Lexington where he's going to preach. And he says, you know, I've realized so he'd already given up his ministry, but he was occasionally substituting for people. He said, you know, I realized if I, the people I want to reach are those young men in the back pews who are falling asleep or shifting around and not paying attention. And I can't reach them in the church. He said, mm. this is part of his decision to become a lecturer, which led to his really much greater influence nationally. The lectures became his books and and really the most uh, best-known thinker of the mid-19th century. Mm-hmm. But someone like Elizabeth Peabody helped to make impossible where uh, she was the host of Margaret Fuller's conversation series, but also like she was the first translator into English of some Buddhist scripture and yeah. you kind of get the feeling that 
that whatever her interests would be would help fuel the what was being absorbed by an Emerson or a Melville or a Hawthorne or they couldn't have done what they did without having people like the Peabody's yeah. who were advocating for and just putting forward the different things that they were interested in. Yes. You know, the role of the translations is really incredibly important to observe. I mean, uh, Elizabeth was teaching herself languages that Emerson, you know, Emerson never learned German. His French was probably pretty weak. And so he was reading, um, there was a book that was influential on so many people um, called Self-Education by a French writer, De Girando. Elizabeth translated that book in the early 1830s and self-education and another book called A Visitor to the Poor by the same guy, which inspired a whole network of ministries to the poor within the Unitarian Church in Boston. You know, without those books, the ideas wouldn't have been here. And it was Elizabeth's translation of another French text uh, called The True Messiah that inspired Thoreau towards this notion that the, the all of nature is, is a vocabulary of the spirit world. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's it's just, if you took that away, what, what would you have? You'd have a bunch of guys wandering around talking to themselves in English and not, not, that, not those ideas of what we have come to call American romanticism, transcendentalism at the time, but it came from the German and French and English romantics who were a generation before our transcendentalists. Looking at that particular period that they lived through and were part of at that time and place, do you view it as having a a legacy that we can see today, or does it appear to you more like a brief moment in time that arose and then vanished? Well, I think it's very much with us still in Mm. these key ideas, and I think we can continue to take inspiration from those ideas, and people still do. The transcendentalist notion that that we must follow an inner light and that we're all connected with nature and the questioning of gender roles that took place then is very significant today. And of course, the transcendentalists were a little bit late to the issue of abolition, but then took a leading role as well. They spoke out also on indigenous rights. In fact, one of the, we, we talked about their influential mother. Their mother was writing poetry about the plight of the Indian back in the early years of the 19th century. So I think what we can do is remind ourselves that keeping our minds active and challenging ourselves and then actually acting can have a lasting effect. And ideas really do matter. I think we're We're seeing that now, Mm. and the truth matters Mm. as well. The book is a classic biography, one of those impressive works that show the amount of time and and amount of digging that the author has put into it. It's called The Peabody Sisters, Three Women Who Ignited American Romanticism. Megan Marshall, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Megan Marshall for being here. Good news, people. This is not the only conversation we have with Ms. Marshall in the works. Oh, no, 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 no. She'll be here three more times. That's the nice thing about expertise. It makes things easier for this 
flowery, mentally ill, weird nerd. <laughs> when I can have good guests, even that grumpy reviewer admitted that. Ah, the guests are good. <laughs> Host... <laughs> Host is off over there. He's, he gets good guess. Well, those are my secret weapons. So smart and so gracious to join me for these conversations of our own here in the 21st century. So next episode is going to be Wednesday, not Thursday. We do this every year so you can listen while you cook. If you're getting ready for a holiday, maybe making a pie or two, working ahead, Lori Frankel is going to be here, and we have a fun episode. It's a new series we're going to be kicking off, so please do join us for that one. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>